0: Please join in prayer once again. love that line, Father. With the angels, let us sing hallelujah to our King. We love to sing about your worth, your glory. So it's our that you'd be praised and pleased. Please give me wisdom and clarity as I seek to explain your word. I ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Please turn your Bibles to John, the Gospel of John, chapter one. Well, for hundreds of years, people have argued about the true meaning of Christmas. It's been a, a special, especially popular trope in a lot of television Christmas specials, to the extent that I was reluctant even to use it as a title for my message. I felt even, just felt, because it is such a trope that's used. But it's really what the message is about, so I thought it was the best title. Uh, arguably, the confusion about the meaning of Christmas started in 1822 when Clemente Park penned that very famous uh, poem, A Visit from Santa Claus, more popularly known as The Night Before Christmas. And it popularized the tradition of giving gifts, and from there on out, America and throughout the world, uh, commercialization has taken over Christmas. Seasonal Christmas shopping has begun to assume great economic importance. That's why uh, uh, retailers look forward to Black Friday every year, because that's when the Christmas shopping begins. We, We thrive on the commercialization of Christmas as a culture. And it was wanting to correct this commercialization of Christmas that an 1889 article was written in American Magazine summarized uh, it, it, quote, the true meaning of Christmas, and it summarized it this way. To give up one's very self, to think only of others, how to bring the greatest happiness to others. That is the true meaning of Christmas, it said. And a hundred years later, Dr. Seuss threw in his two cents in his discussion, when uh, in this discussion when he wrote his story, How the Grinch Stole Christmas. Quoting from that story. And the Grinch, with his Grinch feet, ice cold in the snow, stood puzzling and puzzling. How could it be so? It came without ribbons. It came without tags. It came without packages, boxes, or bags. And he puzzled and puzzled till his puzzler was sore. Then the Grinch thought of something he hadn't before. Maybe Christmas, he thought, doesn't come from a store. Maybe Christmas perhaps means a little bit more. And what happened then? Well, in Whoville, they say, the Grinch's Grinch's small heart grew three sizes that day. And it was actually springboarding off this very story and thinking about the meaning of Christmas that Miley Cyrus wrote this Instagram in 2016. Call me the Grinch, but Christmas always makes me feel deeply sad. It is filled with so much excessiveness and greed. I just hope everyone gives the gift of love and acceptance this year to not only their own family, but those around the globe who don't get everything they wished for due to life's unfair circumstances. My parents always made Christmas about others, and I hope you find it in your heart to do the same. Now, I think most people would still acknowledge that Christmas still is the celebration of the birth of Jesus Christ 2,000 years ago. Most people would recognize that. But few, and I would say even relatively few Christians, would recognize and connect the meaning of Christmas with the meaning of their existence. Because the Bible would inextricably connect those two, both the meaning of Christmas and our existence. And that's actually the point of John chapter 1, verse 14, which tells us this, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as the, of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Without any doubt, the Word, Word here is referring to Jesus Christ. Very few people would argue that point. Uh, largely because of John one one. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And of course, the whole point of the Gospel of John is to display who Jesus Christ was. The question is then... Why would John choose to describe Jesus Christ this way? What's his purpose in calling him the word? Well, the word, word, has a number of nuances that actually point to the greater reality of who Jesus Christ is. And one of those nuances uh, is a philosophical nuance. The Greek word for word, you might know, is logos, Hundreds of years before the Gospel of John was ever written, Greek philosophers used this word "logos" to describe the foundational structure of the universe, the undergirding of the metaphysical world. Uh, it's what it was it, they used it to describe the the greater order and ultimate rule of all things. It was the governing principle in all the universe. Uh, Think of it as as the force of Star Wars. Right? You just imagine if John would have written, In the beginning was the force. And the force was with God and the force was God. Like that would communicate something to us in our culture because of Star Wars. Well, the Greeks had a similar term, rather right? They didn't use the call it the force, but they called it the logos, the ultimate rule of all things. And from this idea came the word. Logic, which refers to the rules of thinking, how we discern truth. They recognize there must be some ultimate objective standard outside of individuals that determines something to be right or wrong. There must be some ultimate objective standard, otherwise there, nothing would actually have any meaning. If truth was relative or subjective... We couldn't even ask the question, what's the meaning of Christmas, that that wouldn't make any sense. And the Greeks, particularly Socrates, Plato and Aristotle, recognized that logic couldn't be the product of just the physical universe, time and space matter. Because if the physical universe were to disappear, logic would still be true, true. Moreover, they recognize that logic isn't the product of human minds because human minds are different. We don't all think the same. But since the rules of logic are always true everywhere and not dependent upon human minds, they recognize there must be an absolute transcendent logos that governs all things. There must be a reason that logic works. There must be a reason that the rules for thinking work consistently. I'll explain by just use of a very simple traditional syllogism. Socrates is a man. All men are mortal. Therefore, Socrates is mortal. Now, if I were to say, therefore, Socrates is immortal, every single one of you would say, whoa, whoa that doesn't make any sense. You're being inconsistent. There's a logic. You would automatically recognize a logical fallacy because logic is innate to the way we think. Now, we might get our Ability to think clearly screwed up. But it is innate. Math also is another expression of this innate logic. Why does math work consistently? The the multiplication table wasn't an invention of humans. They might have figured it out and put order to it and clarity. But they just discovered what was true. The rules of math could not have been made different if we just simply wanted those rules to be different. They're not subjective. Now, consider that that's a very strange phenomena if all that exists in the world is matter. There is no metaphysical reality, no spiritual reality. What about music also? Who made the rules for music? We innately know the rules for music because when a person doesn't follow the rules, like they sing off key, like I almost went off key there, like we know, oh, something's wrong. That doesn't sound right. But if there's no such thing as right and wrong, that doesn't make any sense. So there's some standard, some absolute standard, even of beauty, morality. Also, where does morality come from, right? If many, what many atheists assert today is true—that all that exists is just matter—where does morality or this idea of goodness? Or moral obligation, where does it come from? Right? How could how could one piece of rational matter say to another piece of rational matter, you ought to do something? Like all of us have we use the word ought. We have expectations upon other people. When they don't follow those expectations, we get angry, we get offended. We we take we feel like we have to take justice into our hands. When people don't do what they ought to do. For instance, if we saw some little kid getting picked on by bullies, bullies maybe getting beat up, we would feel in an innate sense uh, that we ought to intervene. We ought to stop this. Well, why? If we're just matter, where does that idea come from? We, there's no such thing as oughtness. That can only be explained by the belief that our universe was begun by a personal force. That is, by a person. Moral obligation is the product of personal relationships. It's rooted in personalities, in people. Namely, God, I would argue. And so, ultimate morality, the ultimate standard for right and wrong, must be rooted in an ultimate person. And one would assume that if such a person existed... And created beings with the ability to reason and come to the conclusion that they ought to do something. You would expect that ultimate being to communicate to his creatures how they ought to live in light of the rules that he has created within the universe. You would expect that. And then he would want them to utilize the gifts of reason, the gifts of of moral obligation in order to function according to the way he designed them. And this actually brings us to another significance of the word logos or word. And that's that God has communicated. He has communicated to us using words, spoken words. He spoke through the prophets. He's also spoken to us in his word. Words are methods of communication. And logos has this nuance as well. And that's why John's describing Jesus here as the word, because Jesus was the ultimate expression of who God was. He was communicating to his creatures. This is what I am like. Jesus is the very image of God, it says in Colossians 1. He's communicating himself, revealing himself. As John states later in the chapter, in verse 18, no one has ever seen God. The only God who's at the Father's side, He, referring to Christ, has made Him known. Jesus actually said as much in His prayer in John 17. Right before He went to the Father, He said, I have manifested Your name to the people whom You gave Me out of the world. I've revealed who You are. And then in 1 John 5.20, the Apostle John says, We know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding, so that we may know Him who is true. Like, the reason He gave us this understanding is so that we would know Him who is true. He is the true God and eternal life. So God came to communicate Himself that we might know Him and understand Him rightly. That's what John is saying here in using the word logos. Most of you have probably heard that famous analogy of the three blind men and the elephant. And the point of the analogy is to, to demonstrate that there is no such thing as absolute truth, that truth is just subjective. Because what you have here is three blind men are brought to an elephant, and the first happens upon his leg, and he's feeling it, and he says, oh, okay, this is what an elephant's like. He must be like a tree trunk. That's what he concludes. The second man bumps into his trunk, and he concludes, oh, okay, let's, it's, actually, I think it's more like a snake. And the last man feels its tail, and he concludes, well, it's just, it's like a broom, actually. And so all three come to very different conclusions about what an elephant is because they're only seeing a piece of it. And it's, again, the point of the story is to show how subjective truth is. Unless a person grasps all of truth all at once, they're only going to see, they're only going to see things their way, so to speak. And this analogy of trying to suggests that truth is subjective works until the elephant himself speaks and says, I'm an elephant, and this is how I want you to live. What John is saying is that the truth or the word has spoken. He has revealed himself to us. Truth is not subjective. It's knowable because he has made it known. Nobody would presume to say that they they knew absolute truth just because they themselves are smarter or just wiser than everybody else. No, nobody can know what God knows unless God reveals it to us. But he has not only has he revealed it in his through his prophets and through the scriptures, but he's revealed it in Christ. And John is saying, not only has he spoken to us, he has become one of us. The word became flesh And dwelt among us. We get the term incarnation from this phrase. You see that phrase, in the flesh. The Latin would be incarnate. John's saying that the self-existent creator, the one who has created all things, who has always existed. That creator suspended all of his glory in order to take on flesh and become one of us. Why? Why would he do that? There's got to be a reason. If he was fully content in eternity past, why in the world would he become, Would the Creator become like a creature? I mean, he'd already been communicating. Again, we t- spoke to Abraham and Moses, all the patriarchs. He spoke to the prophets. He'd been revealing his will to Israel for centuries. So he didn't need to communicate by words any differently. Didn't need to become one of us to speak to us. So why did he die? Why did he come? We have to recognize the significance of this. First, we need to recognize that God didn't need to create man in the first place. Again, he's the only being in all of creation that's always existed. And he existed in eternity past completely content. God had no needs he needed to have fulfilled. He was happy, satisfied, and had been from eternity past. In fact, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit chose to create man in order that men, other creatures, might share the love and affection that they had for one another. They wanted to share their love. They wanted to share their glory with other creatures. So they created beings, namely men and other creatures, of course, as well. Angels. God created men in order to enjoy his glory through worshiping him. And the Bible says that this is our ultimate purpose. But instead of worshiping God... Men have chosen to worship creatures rather than the Creator, primarily themselves. Romans 121, a few books later, says this, For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. I mean, all of us since Adam have this innate tendency to want to exalt ourselves, to do what we want, to consider ourselves first and foremost. And we, we see this in subtle things like just competing with one another. Whenever a game is played, we have this desire to want to win. To be better than everybody else. We want to exalt ourselves. In fact. Most people assume. That people should just. Live for what they want. They That we should have a, some sense of entitlement. People should do what they want. Rather than what others want. And most people assume they should just live for themselves. But. When other people are selfish, when other people are selfish and they offend us by their selfishness, by not treating us with the respect that we think we deserve or for whatever reason, we get offended. We, we assume that we can act selfishly, but if anybody else does, then, then, a, then a, a violation has taken place and they need to be taken down. Everybody thinks with this inherent selfishness. And so when we do get offended, that's why we get self pitiful. That's why we feel sorry for ourselves. We get stolen. Some violation has taken place because in our hearts we think we deserve more and everybody else should recognize that. Now, when we see tyrants and despots who actually have the ability to make other people respect them and honor them and treat them with the honor they think they deserve, we we see that and we think it's sick. We think it's wrong when we see other people who have the power to make people treat them with the honor they think they deserve, we recognize there's something inherently wrong there. We hate it when people act like gods and expect others to treat them with reverence. And rightly so. Because only one being deserves to be treated with reverence. And that's God. Our Creator And we know this, but we live on a daily basis with a mental framework that assumes we deserve reverence. We regularly live for ourselves first and foremost. We wake up in the morning thinking about what we want. When we go to the refrigerator, we're not thinking about what would be best for me to eat, but what do I want? We approach our work with how... If there's nothing in it for me, why would I give more exertion? And we even assume we have this right to do just what we want. And yet by nature, the only thing we actually have a right to is death. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. And all of us are sinners. So you want to talk about rights. The Bible says our right is to die eternally. And that is why God took on flesh. Because men have rebelled against him and they've ruined themselves. And in contrast to us, the Son of God possessed by right, by the right of his own being, the right to be worshipped, the right to be praised, and he set it aside. And he became like one of his creatures in order to save us from our slavery to sin, to free us from its ultimate penalty, the wrath of God. Hebrews 2 is helpful in this regard. Hebrews 2.14 so since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. And the Apostle John says it this way. He says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Not that that word "dwelt" is a very unique word. It's, it's Sometimes translated and tabernacled, because it is the Greek word for the tabernacle, the the place where God's shekinah glory descended, and where the Israelites could come and worship in the presence of God. The point is that the shekinah glory that once was relegated to the tabernacle and then later on to the temple has now taken up residence, not in the tabernacle, but actually in the presence of Jesus Christ himself. The glory that was once in the tabernacle was now manifested in a man, is what John is saying. And it's this understanding that Yahweh tabernacled among the people of God as Jesus that leads to John's second statement in this verse, when he said, "...and men saw his glory." We've seen His glory. Glory is the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Just as the word dwelt is an allusion to the Old Testament, so is this statement here, we have seen His glory. Or You might recall that famous statement made by Moses when he, when he asked God after the golden calf incident, God, show me your glory. In Exodus thirty-three eighteen, and this is how the Lord responded. In fact, go ahead and turn there. It's worth seeing this in context. Exodus chapter 33. Exodus, of course, is the second book of the Bible. Exodus 33. God responds to his request. I will make all my goodness pass before you. In verse 18 and will proclaim before you my name the lord and i will be gracious to whom i'll be gracious and i will show mercy on whom i will show mercy verse 20 but he said you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live and he always said behold there's a place by me where you shall stand on the rock and while my glory passes by i will put you in the cleft of the rock and i will cover you with the, my hand until i pass by and then I'll take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. What John is saying here is that he and everyone else who saw Jesus Christ upon the earth had a mountaintop experience like Moses. They saw God, <clears throat> Yahweh, in all of his glory. Or at least, some of it at least. It was veiled still in flesh. As we sing in the song... Veiled in flesh the Godhead see. hailed the incarnate deity. Pleased as man with men to dwell. Jesus our Emmanuel. They saw Yahweh and yet they didn't need to be hidden in a rock. Because God's glory was veiled by flesh. And yet they still saw His glory. And there, There's more to this though. Because there's an inextricable uh, connection between the glory of God and the character of God or the nature of God. Like God in his nature is glorious, but this idea of glory is tied to the name of God. And the name of God reflects his character. Like God, Moses asks to see his glory and God says, okay, I will show you my glory. I will proclaim to you my name. And then he describes what his name is. And it's just Listing his character. Character. He's gracious. He shows mercy. His nature is glorious even as his character is glorious. God proclaimed his name or his nature to Moses. And then Jesus revealed that very nature, that glory of God in his incarnation, death, and resurrection. So again, John is saying we have seen with our eyes the one true God and that he is exactly what he proclaimed to Moses. A God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. John is saying this is what God is like. And he's proven it through the incarnation of Christ. I mean, note even the significance of how John describes his glory. Glory as the only son from the Father. What's significant about this glory is that it's unique to him being the only son of God. That word that's used there, monogenes, emphasizes the uniqueness of Jesus. The the word described um, one who is like an only child, it refers to an only child in Luke 7 and then Luke 9, also Luke 8. It just basically means one of a kind. And what John is saying is that Jesus was unique. He was the only true Son of God the Father. Now all the rest of us can become adopted children, but He's the only child by nature. But He took on flesh... So that he could not only adopt us, but also allow us to share in his nature. All Christians can can become children of God by adoption, but yet Jesus is the only one who by their original nature is the son of God. But Jesus wants to share His nature with us. That's why He took on flesh, in fact. That's why He died in our place. In fact, he made it clear that that's why He came in John 17:22. Go look at that. One were to ask Jesus, "Well, what's the meaning of Christmas?" This is what Jesus would say. Why he took on flesh. Verse 22, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one, even as we are one. I and them and you and me that they may be perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. Father, I desire that they also whom you've given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you've given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. Through his death and resurrection, Jesus actually imparts his nature to his followers. And he gives them the right to be called the children of God. Because he's the only true son of God. But he gives us the right through what he did for us to become children as well. And when we come into his presence, we will share in that nature fully. According to 2 Peter chapter 1. But notice also John defines... The glory that he saw in Christ, full of grace and truth, which is, of course, what our church is named after. The Bible scholars actually suggest that these are the New Testament equivalent to the description of God in the Old Testament as being a God uh, full of steadfast love and faithfulness. The, the very theme that is that emphasized through the book of Exodus these virtues proclaimed by Yahweh when He displayed His glory to Moses. He's a God merciful and gracious. Now that should come as a bit of a shock to us because one would expect if God created us to honor and glorify Him and we haven't done that, one would expect God in His nature, if He was a just God, to be full of wrath and justice. But that's not What Jesus revealed. Of course, God is just and he is angry with sin. But even though that's true, what dominates God is his desire to show mercy and grace. That's why Christ came. That's what Christ revealed. Though God is just, though God is holy, though he's infinitely glorious and satisfied, and though we have... Chosen instead not just to worship creatures but to seek worship for ourselves. Instead of just pouring his wrath out upon us, he is chosen to intercede for us and to be gracious to us. He's full of grace, full of truth. And this is why God sent us on the world. John 3:16. For God so loved the world. That he gave his only begotten son, that whoever should believe in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his, send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. His glory was full of grace, but it's also full of truth. Jesus came that we might know the truth. He said, You shall know the truth, and the truth will set you free. John eight thirty one. All right. This is an absolute contrast to Satan, to Satan, who dominates this world through his influence, and he's defined as the father of lies. Jesus said in John eight forty four, speaking to the Pharisees, he said, "You're the father of the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires." He was a murderer from the beginning, and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character. For he is a liar and the father of lies. And Jesus said that they are of the, their father Satan because all of us are born into this world like Satan as self-worshippers who suppress the truth of God. Again, Romans 8, 1.18. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth because they exchange the truth about God for a lie and worship and serve the creature rather than the creator. We know the truth. We know we should worship God. We know that we actually don't deserve worship. And so, in order to get away with that, what do we have to do? We suppress the truth. We are truth suppressors. We actually like lies. Because that gives us justification to live as self-centered creatures. That's the truth. And because this world is corrupted by sin, no matter how many lies we embrace, they'll never satisfy us. And we know this by our own experience now it's not to say that we won't experience good times of course we're going to enjoy the pleasures of food sex friendships family we love christmas we love getting new things we love new clothes new cars they do bring some pleasure but they don't really satisfy us. They certainly won't last. I remember just growing up often being as excited as I could possibly be ecstatic on Christmas morning and then severely depressed by Christmas Eve. I mean, honestly, I just, I just thought, this is, this is going to make my life good, finally. And, then, and, and families coming over, which didn't make things better. <laughs> it, just, it all came out. The selfishness, the pride, especially in my own heart. And this is true of any pleasure. And in many cases, the more we indulge in them, the emptier we feel when the pleasure dissipates. And this is just because of the way sin works. The, the, on account of sin, the world is defined by death, decay, destruction. And anything we look to for satisfaction to fill the place that only God can fill will only disappoint us. It, it, because it can't. Nothing can compete with God. It can lie and say, oh yeah, I can be a God to you. Whether it's drugs or drink or girlfriends. But it's, those are false gods. They're idols. G.K. Chesterton once said this. I really appreciate this quote. Every man who knocks on the door of a brothel is seeking God. And what he means by that is that he's seeking something that only God can satisfy. He's not just seeking sex. He's seeking fulfillment. He's seeking he's seeking what it means to be a man. To be truly human because he feels inadequate. And so he's going to find a cheap and easy solution that will only destroy point is that every person who has ever lived is seeking to find fulfillment and satisfaction from somewhere. But we're all just like blind men walking around the dark, trying to find some sort of hope. And what the apostle John says is the word became flesh ultimately because men have been groping around in that darkness, looking for light. And now the light has come. The light is now shown into the darkness. And he's calling us to come to the light so that we might have life. Now again, as I mentioned before, Satan, the father of lies, has made it his primary aim to keep us from coming to the light. To allure us with anything other than Christ. Right? And he plies his trade through lies. Just think from the very beginning. He told Adam and Eve that they could become like God. And in in eating the fruit, there wasn't going to be any consequence. You won't die, he said. Well, that certainly wasn't the case. And yet we continue to buy into his lies again and again and again. And in contrast, God tells us the truth. He tells us the truth about how the world really works. And it doesn't necessarily make us feel good about ourselves. But that's not God's intent. His intent is to satisfy us with himself because that's what we were created for, not to satisfy us with ourselves. And he not only tells us the truth, he shows us, right? He became a man to show us. He showed up here and lived among us and suffered through life and allowed himself to be crucified in order to prove how grave the danger really is. If it really wasn't, if there really wasn't a threat because of our rebellion, he wouldn't have allowed himself to be crucified. God became man on Christmas Day 2,000 years ago in order to make the truth of your existence crystal clear. Right? The meaning of Christmas is the meaning of your life. You were created to worship God, to be satisfied in Him. But you failed. We've all failed to give Him the honor He deserves. And therefore, we justly deserve His wrath. And the Son of God took the penalty of God's wrath for us when He died on the cross. But that will only be accredited to us. We only get the benefit of Christ's death if we believe in Him. If we trust in Him and choose to repent from our life of self-worship and, 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 and repent from that life and instead live for Him in His glory. And so how do we do that? Well, we'll just begin by crying out to Him and say something like this, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I know I deserve Your punishment on account of what I've done but I believe Your Son has paid the penalty for my sin. Change my heart so that I can now live for You and for Your glory. And Father, that is all our prayer. Who have trusted in You already. We want to no longer live for ourselves. Because we we can't offer any good in and of ourselves. Lord, we can only offer good through Christ. Christ has become everything to us. And so we want to live for Him. And to let the world know of the hope that is found in Him. So God, give us wisdom. Even this day, this week, as we interact with family and friends, to know how we can wisely share the good news of hope that was offered to us in the incarnation and death and resurrection of Christ. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.